Good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today for the ninth episode of Ulcerative Colitis and my Jade Pouch Journey, where we talk about ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, bowel cancer, ostomies, and Jade Pouches. I am your host, Suzanne LaFleur, and I was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis when I was 23 years old. At the age of 33, I went through the required surgeries to have my entire colon removed and have a J-pouch formed. For those of you who have been following us from the beginning, thank you. For those of you who are joining us for the first time today, please help us to continue the conversation by hitting that subscribe button and sharing us on your social media. Let's highlight the conversations about gastrointestinal diseases and to support one another through our seldom talked about journeys. Today, Troy from California, United States, is joining me to talk about being diagnosed with ulcerative colitis as a teenager and what his journey has been like through to adulthood. Troy was diagnosed with ulcerative colitis as a teenager. Would you like to tell us a little bit about what that was like? I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my 20s, so I'm not really aware how that impacted you. So being diagnosed as a teenager is definitely a, a big issue for anybody. Uh, such a pivotal time in your life. You're supposed to feel invincible, especially as a boy. You're going through a lot already, right? And then to pile on top of it, the health problem that is ulcerative colitis and then the diagnosis. So from what I understand medically is that there are two main points in life where doctors see people come in with new diagnoses. And that is as a teenager or the beginning of the senior citizen years, the 55 to 65 year age bracket too. If you're in your thirties, the diagnosis falls off. So there's a, a lot of people that are diagnosed as teenagers. And I think that that really needs to change on how we do it because it is such an invasive set of procedures and, you know, upheaval to life to do that diagnosis. But as I was diagnosed, I mean, I started having symptoms, I think around 13 years old with just diarrhea. And at the time, as a young guy, I was starting to work out really hard and being told that I really needed to feed for those workouts. So when I started having issues, my mom rushes me to the pediatrician and he says, oh, you know, this is probably dumping syndrome. So cut back how much you're eating. Stop drinking the raw egg milkshake you saw on, you know, Rocky and, you know, and then that'll go away. And you go through a couple months and it doesn't go away. And then you go back to the doctor and, oh, well, you were in the back country because I like to hike and um, backpack. Okay, it's probably Giardia. So then we go through, you know, antibiotics and then you go down the road of, oh, well, let's do stool samples. So commonly what I hear from almost everybody that's diagnosed with IBD of some kind is that's a really, it's a two to three year process of getting a diagnosis. And that's really where, what happened to me too. Now in those two to three years, I'm having frequency anywhere from four to 10 plus trips to the bathroom a day. I'm having urgency with 30 to 60 seconds notice to get to a bathroom, terrible cramping. I remember being in high school on a tennis court for PE and just doubling over in excruciating pain on the court while a cramp happened. And my opponent's like, oh my God, like, do I need to call the teacher? What do I do? 
And then 30 seconds later, it's over like it never even happened. And what do you do with that? Let alone, you know, going through your first colonoscopy as a pubescent 15 year old and being told, Hey, you know, we're going to, we're going to shove this big camera up your butt. And really I, I had a GI who was not sympathetic, not well-versed in patient bedside care at all. And, you know, I was just being told this is the way it goes. And the prep for a lot of people that are mid flare with uncontrolled ulcerative colitis is hell. I mean, it's painful. It's you're just completely dehydrated by it. And so going through that and having no support as a teenager sucked. And now when I have uh, friends or people I know that either were diagnosed as a teenager or have teenagers going through it, I really advocate for them. And I advocate for them to also get in to see a therapist. I think pretty much anybody diagnosed with IBD or ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, really it should come with 10 trips to a therapist because this is a life altering diagnosis. That's going to be a lifelong disease that is going to just completely wreck you mentally. And, um, thankfully part of the way through this, I was able to get in to see somebody and talk about the issues, but they are things that still the anxiety, right? If you're like, I have 30 seconds to get to a bathroom, ready, set, go. That's going to put anxiety in the back of your head no matter what, right? So yeah. if you deal with that for years, you deal with it being controlled, then flare, then controlled and flare. That's, that's crazy making. And that's it's such a worry, right? Because you're in school and everybody's teenagers. And probably if you didn't make it to the washroom, that will follow you for the remainder of your teenage life, correct? And, and teenagers don't really understand that sort of thing, no matter how much you explain it to them. So I can, I can absolutely understand how you feel. I mean, I was, I was 23 when I had my first symptoms of colitis. And I remember my family doctor saying, you can't have ulcerative colitis. Ulcerative colitis is an old people's disease is exactly what he said to me. And it took a year for him to finally do the sigmoidoscopy, then do the colonoscopy, and then finally give me a diagnosis. And when I finally did get the diagnosis, he was pretty sheepish because I'd been, you know, I had two babies by then and I had a, a like a newborn pretty much. And I'd been struggling for a year trying to raise two children and struggling, going to the bathroom constantly and just getting sicker and sicker. So I, I completely know what you mean. And probably if I would have been 50, the diagnosis would have come a lot sooner because it was quote unquote an old people's disease. However, when you're even at 13, I can't even imagine, right? They probably weren't even considering a diagnosis of ulcerative colitis. Well, and, and your pediatrician isn't really looking for that kind of thing. And, you know, and, and they're great doctors, but he just didn't know to refer to a GI early enough. Nowadays, I think too, in 30 years later, right? <laughs> medicine has changed. And even going back to, had I had issues that were in front of people at school, even the mentality of teenagers in the nineties to today or the eighties and nineties to today is a hundred percent different. I've got two teenagers at home. I got a 13 year old and a 16 year old. And if something had happened in class with one of my teenagers friends, I would hope that a, the teacher, but B the other students, this would go to at least here in America, this would go to a, a medical condition 
you know, symptomology thing. Okay. The administration is going to quash anything that has to do with this. If they see a kid getting bullied, ridiculed or anything about that in the eighties and nineties, you were free reign. So, I mean, I had accidents in the car a number of times and, you know, with girlfriends in the car and things like this. And it turned into the, like, I am not getting out of this seat until I get home, you know, and then having to get home, get myself inside, get cleaned up and then clean up the trail of tears after that. So there's a lot of hairy incidents too, that I could, I could go into. I mean, just, just story after story, those of us that have been in this situation, we can tell the war stories and now look back at it and, and maybe laugh or cry a little bit, but it really does help. And I hope it helps other people that have gone through this or that are, are going through this know that you have support. There are others of us that have gone through it, that it didn't kill us. Uh, I didn't, you know, there are many times I wanted to dig a hole, crawl in it and just die. Still here. You know, my life has moved on. My life is great now. I wouldn't trade my life today for anything. I would trade out some of those instances, but having support, finding online support community or personal support community, it would be even better. But finding those other people that could say like, oh, you think that accident was bad? Oh, I got one that'll make your toes curl. Those, those stories, at least now looking back, we can laugh at it, realize like we've been able to move on. And maybe if they were in front of other people, most of those people like don't even remember them. We're the ones holding that. I don't know if it's funny or if it's just interesting, but I know when I was a teenager and when I was a younger person, you didn't talk about poop. You didn't talk about bowel movements. You didn't talk about all the time you spent in the bathroom that day or whatever. And now I have a son who has ulcerative colitis as well. He's 24 years old. And just the communication around it and the openness around it is way different now with his set of friends and with his girlfriend than it was when I was younger. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Totally. Totally. No. Um, but, but for everybody too, yeah, it's, it's such a taboo subject. Um, we actually ran into a mom of a teammate of one of my sons whose his other brother had ulcerative colitis and that mom too had had no support network for her to decompress with. And we were out at a team dinner and that mom found out about my history. And for the next two hours, my wife and I were cornered in a booth with her at a restaurant while she just poured out her entire heart of five years of dealing with this, that she had nobody else to take this to and glad that I could be there for her as a resource. But, you know, she was so grateful to have an example in front of her that had 30 years later moved on with life, become productive. And that now the blessing of this story that I want, want people to come away with is now you would only know that I had ulcerative colitis and that I have a J pouch if I want to tell you. Exactly. Otherwise, my employees, some, most of my employees, colleagues of mine, they have no idea. They have no idea about my medical history. They don't need to know about my medical history. And if I want to tell them, I'll tell them. But many people are completely floored now when I tell them I have no colon and I am not what they picture as an ostomy patient. Being a teenager with ulcerative colitis, what was that like with the dating scene and with being able to 
quote unquote, be as normal a teenager as you could be. That's a terrible word, yeah. not normal, but um, do you and, know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> None of us are normal then. Well, and, and yeah, that, that was a big deal. The big thing, the big overarching fear, right? The anxiety that just comes along with ulcerative colitis when you have it is, am I, how am I going to be today? How am I going to be in the next hour? You don't even know. Right. And so I would live in fear of where are we going to go on a date? Is there going to be a bathroom nearby? Am I going to be okay? And I can remember just going for a walk around the local lake and having to find a bathroom and not being able to get into a locked bathroom and then just doubling up in pain and not being able to explain it to someone you've only been on two or three dates with. So it was a real issue of how's it going to be now? And what do I tell them? And when do I tell them? I didn't really have the words for it. And I think that anybody with any kind of chronic diagnosis as a teenager are they even going to have the words really to explain to somebody what's going on with them? I didn't have the, the words. And it took me even through once I was more controlled and in remission for longer periods of time, when it would come back and flare, then it would be somebody that I may have been in a relationship with for months that hadn't seen anything come up, hadn't needed to tell them. And now all of a sudden we're three, four, five, six months into a relationship and I'm in a flare and now I've got to divulge to you, oh, by the way, I've got this big thing going on. And you don't divulge it when it's, when everything's good during the candle at dinner, you divulge it when, hey, I've got 60 seconds. I need to go to a bathroom right now. So I'm going to drive like Mario Andretti to the nearest restaurant, hotel or whatever. And when you did go ahead and tell them, was there positive responses? Was there negative? Were you ever turfed or left in the dust because yeah, I, they just couldn't deal with it. I mean, you know, in our own heads, this is this giant thing of, oh my gosh, we couldn't possibly be loved or accepted with ulcerative colitis. And now hindsight and you as a mom with a, with kid who's got it and everything like that, you're like, oh, this is completely like workable. Like we can deal with that. Like, I'm sorry, you're, you're not a crazy ax murderer. You're not, you know, there's, there's a whole lot worse things in this world. So it was a lot of it now in hindsight was built up in my own head because I was never completely rejected by anybody. I was never like, oh, you're a freak. And I'm going to tell the whole school. And there was no social media, thankfully back then either. Right. So you know, nobody ever was going to go tell a bunch of people. I mean, they could, they could have told their best friend or their other two friends, but no girlfriend was going to go like spread this around. It was going to be a big deal. So, you know, it was always built up as this is going to be a big deal. And then it wasn't right. So that made it really interesting too, though. Uh, and I can go into the story of how my wife and I met was actually, she was my nurse in the hospital during one of my J pouch surgeries. So we joke that she got into this. I didn't even have to tell her. She had my entire medical chart in front of her. <laughs> she worked on a uh, med surge floor. So she knew she, what she was getting into. She knew everything about it. Yeah. So right. From, I mean, she knew my great. surgeon really well. And my surgeon was invited to our wedding, even, you know, like she knew going in exactly what she was getting into. 
That's a really nice story to hear. I've had people tell me actually that they won't date because they either have colitis or they have a J pouch. And I think what you say about it being built up in your head is absolutely true. Because if there's that one time out of 10 where somebody is like, well, I don't want to be with you, then you didn't want to be with them anyway. Correct? Yeah, yeah. 100%. And and it goes even further. I've coached a number of people through the surgery process of a J pouch. And many of them, while they have a ostomy and they're wearing a appliance, are like, oh, I have to stay in your home or I have to modify my life to deal with that. I was quite exposed to online, a number of people with ostomies before I went in for surgery. And I came out feeling so much better now that I had this diseased colon taken out of me. And what I tell people while they have even a appliance is the limitation now is all in your head. So if you're having a bag is preventing you from doing anything, there are plenty of people in this world that wear ostomy bags every day and you would never know. And they live great, successful, happy, fulfilled lives. So don't let it hold you back. If that's what's in your way, that's all in your mind. We can fix that. That's what therapy's for. And that's okay. So go, go do that because I came out the three months that I had a bag were some great months of my life. And really the only thing that I found out at one point that they really don't like you doing with a bag is scuba diving. But I've now even met a scuba diver who dives with an appliance and I don't know how that works. So it's all in your head. Absolutely. It has a lot to do with body image, I think, and just that worry that it's going to leak or it's going to blow up. It is definitely. And if it does. Then it does. Yeah. And if it does, it does. And, you know, I had, oh my gosh, the number of leaks I had with my bags was insane. The number of bathrooms I did complete changes in, I got really good at it. Okay. Like, you know, it sucks. We got to move on. To me, that was far better than the unknown and the urgency and the accidents. In my line of work at the time, I was a live camera operator. So I could be stuck on a camera in the middle of an audience in an auditorium for hours and you're not getting out of, you're not, you're not stepping down from that. So that was bigger issue. So you mentioned uh, before when we spoke that having ulcerative colitis shrank your life. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that just a little bit. Yeah. The, the, the shrinking my life really became about, I knew that, you know, the colitis itself was so unpredictable that I needed some kind of control of what would be predictable. Well, if there's a bathroom within 60 seconds and everywhere I go and I know where those places are, then we're good. And I can, I can continue about my life. Right. So I would be the planner and I would be the one that chose where we'd be when we'd be and all that so that I could be okay. And the cool thing for us in Southern California is that Disneyland is right nearby. And back at those days, annual passes were fairly inexpensive and there's bathrooms everywhere in Disneyland and they're impeccably clean. So, you know, that, that would be a common outing for me and friends, but it really took to about seven years of being fairly uncontrolled in my ulcerative colitis to that I sat down one day and took stock of my life and how the colitis had really just limited what I was allowing myself to do and the scope of where I was allowing myself to even think. And it, it went to a point of, 
I had a executive producer offer to take me to China with him to produce. Yeah. Uh, You know, what an opportunity. Right. And while I jumped at it, there was a huge amount of fear and preparation that was going to have to go into that for me to be okay with the unpredictable schedule and where are we going to be and what are we going to do? And I came away with uh, a pretty crazy story of running into a bar in the middle of a Chinese city and trying to ask for a bathroom and having a bartender just look at me blank in the face. And unfortunately, you know, I, I ran to the back room and found the toilet and completely destroyed it, unfortunately. But I refuse to let my life be defined by it and put myself into some situations that were pretty stupid. But once I had surgery, I mean, then all of a sudden it was like, wait, this is all that I was missing, right? You know, it's that frog in the frying pan that people talk about of as things got worse and worse, I wasn't able to see around me that I had started to limit more and more of my life and not do things that I wanted to do, not eat things that I wanted to eat. You know, I had to plan if I was going to be on a job site all day tomorrow, well, my meals and what I put in my mouth had to start two days before that to be okay with that. Right. Seriously. If somebody had come to me today and told me all that, I would be like, this is insanity. You can't do that. So taking that step away from myself and really taking a cold, hard, objective look. And one thing I did that I think many ulcerative colitis sufferers should do and, and should do before they go to surgery, if possible, I actually made an Excel spreadsheet of my symptoms day by day. How many times I went to the bathroom? Did I have an accident? Did I have cramping urgency, all of that. And I kept a law very objectively for 30 days. And it was once I did that and I looked back at it and I went, oh my God, this is ridiculous. And then I took it to my doctor. I took it to my gastroenterologist and I said, this is not okay. If anybody came to me and told me that this was their life, I would be like, put a bullet in your brain. This is no, you can't do that. Um, And he then got the picture. He couldn't hear my qualitative telling him how badly my life was. He needed to see it in paper. And so once I did that and I brought it to him, then he could refer me to one of the best in the area GIs who then he was no nonsense. He said, okay, we are going to nip this thing in the bud. And he went through drug protocol after drug protocol and said, if I don't get you better in, I think it was like three or six months. So if we don't get you under control in three or six months, you're going to surgery. At that time, when you were going through the process of trying to figure out if it was surgery time, were you on biologics or what type of medications were you on at the time? Yeah. Biologics were just starting to come out. I think there was one, I think it was Remicade or something was just starting to be used. I was on sulfasalazine, Asacol for years and years and years, and it worked okay. And then I developed an allergy to the active ingredient. So that entire line of drugs was off limits to me immediately. And then we went through round after round of high doses of prednisone. We did um, six mercaptopurine. And I think we did one or two other things that I just can't remember. We might've done them for so short, but the biologics weren't really in, in high use at that point. And now they're, I mean, I've heard incredible results with them, but I've also heard people not respond to them. And basically I found a GI who said, we are going to run the protocol and we're going to run through these and we're going to give each one like 
four weeks. And if we don't see marked improvement in four weeks, we got to move on. And we moved through this. I mean, it was three or six months and the guy was no nonsense. And I came out of that saying we did everything we could do at the same time. A lot of people around me have said, oh, did you try chiropractic? Did you try meditation? And I was really at that point so desperate that I said, okay, if we're going to surgery, this is permanent. I don't want to look back and said, had I only tried X, Y, or Z. So I went and did some crazy diets. One of them for two weeks was sheer hell and it made things worse didn't make things better. I went, I spent a lot of money out of pocket going to a chiropractor who everybody said, this guy is awesome. He can cure anything. It didn't touch me. So once I made the decision, like, okay, we're going to the OR. I rested easy in that. My mom, you know, I was 25 at the time. My mom was worried for me. You know, this is honey, this is such a big decision, but I knew we had tried everything. We left no stone unturned. And to this day, that's one of the things that I can rest easy with is to, I have an objective spreadsheet of how horrible my symptoms were that anybody could look at and said, this is unacceptable for your life. You're not allowed to live that way. And then to know I went through protocol after protocol, after protocol, after protocol, we tried them all. And then we made the decision. Okay. Now there's nothing left and your quality of life sucks, dude. So because Going through surgery was no cakewalk. I literally tell people you are going to be re-potty trained. Yes. Tell you re-potty training at 25. Yeah, that's not fun. But if you have objective record, if you have diaries, if you know how bad it was, okay, this re-potty training sucks. It's not fun, but wow, it's still a whole lot better than this, you know, life you were leading under ulcerative colitis was. So yeah, you know, people talk about butt burn, people talk about nighttime leakage. Give me all that because I've got the spreadsheet that shows you how bad my life was before we went to surgery. So you started the surgeries when you were 25? Yep. And now that you have a J pouch, do you feel like you still have to fashion your life around your J pouch a little bit? Uh, a, a little bit. And that little bit, you know, becomes... As I said, as much or as little as I want to share with you about, you know, Mr. Stranger on the street. So if somebody was observing me very closely, maybe they might notice, gosh, he really drinks a lot of fluid. You're right. J pouchers are subject to dehydration very easily. We need more electrolytes than the normal person. And we pass through a lot more fluid than normal, normal person. Do I have to fashion my life around that? Not really. I mean, I just make sure that, you know, at lunch, I get a little extra fluid when I'm out and about, I've got a water bottle nearby. Now it's the fashionable thing, right? Everybody's carrying water bottles and, you know, we would do, we were doing it when it wasn't. So I don't fashion my life around it. I eat a full diet of anything that I feel like. Are there things that will cause me butt burn or cause me some little symptoms later? Yeah. So you make the decisions, but it does not rule my life. Do you find that you're up during the night at all still? into the washroom or is that pretty settled for you? There's a lot of people that I've talked with that do have the two to three visits a night to the bathroom. So that comes and goes for me. Like right now, I've been in the last maybe four months. I'm up at three o'clock every night and it's, it's almost exactly three o'clock. Now, I also know that I eat late. A lot of people will say like, you know, don't eat after seven or eight o'clock at night. 
for my family with my kids in sports, we don't sit down and eat dinner till seven o'clock and I continue and snack a little bit beyond that. So I've kind of gotten okay with getting up at three o'clock to go to the bathroom once, but I've had long stretches when I don't get up at all and I sleep all the way through the night. I don't have any leakage. Things are solid and things are going really well. And then every so often, and I'm not really sure, like right now, am I in a little bit of pouchitis? Maybe. And maybe that's what's causing me to get up at, at night. Am I okay with it? Obviously, I've been letting it go for like four or six months. So you kind of can choose your battles. So you're saying you think you've had pouchitis for about four months? Um, some kind of mild irritation. And yeah, okay. pouchitis for pouchitis for me, I, I liken it to a normal person when I tell them about pouchitis. I, I tell them that to me, it shows up kind of like a cold. I may get a little malaise. Usually um, my output becomes more watery and maybe I have a little bit more frequency. But during the day, I pretty set on when I go, whether I have pouchitis or not. Usually it's like 10 to 6 and then before bed which is kind of when people go to the bathroom anyways, like, you know, whether I sit down or stand up, nobody else cares. So, and I can skip one if I want to, but I can get mild pouchitis and it can really be like that mild. It can be no big deal in my, the rest of my life. And oftentimes I've been able to control mild bouts of pouchitis with probiotics and with digestive enzymes. So you know, if I don't have to go on to two weeks of Cipro or Flagyl, I try not to. But the flip side is to me too, two weeks of, pouch of, of Cipro or Flagyl, it's like no big deal, you know, and, and it's really cheap here too. Yeah, I'm the opposite. If I get pouchitis, it hits me hard and fast. There is no like, oh, maybe I have pouchitis. Yeah, you're probably going like, how how does this guy get pouchitis? And like, not even sure if he's got it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I am in the bathroom nonstop. And I always just have Ciprone flagell here just in case, because the quicker I can get it in me, the better I am. So it's funny how everybody is a little bit different that way. And I really went, I really went through an opening when I first had my pouch. I mean, we went through almost two years of cycling on and off the antibiotics to try and get pouchitis under control. And it took a while for my pouch just to get used to what its role was. So there's it's funny you say that because I, I got my J pouch when I was 34 years old. I went to nursing school when I was 39. I was absolutely fine. No, po I didn't even know what pouchitis was. And as soon as I started nursing school, the stress within one month, I had pouchitis. And it was literally nonstop until I stopped nursing. Like I nursed for eight years and it was just pochitis, pochitis, pochitis. And then it was, I think just the, just the, the stress and the busy and the not eating properly and the getting run down and the night shifts and the day shifts and the evening shift. I, it was a constant battle with pochitis. Now I haven't had it since this spring. So knock on wood. You have something exciting to talk about, and it's now you are in the Ironman competitions. Yeah. So about seven, six, seven years ago, I decided, you know, hey, I'm feeling pretty good. Why not get back in shape? And, you know, one thing led to another. And I've now done over 10 half Ironman races and two full Ironmans. And, uh, I just completed the New York marathon this last November. So, 
One of the things I, I tell people that are new to thinking about a J pouch or something like that. I mean, yeah, I do Ironmans. I have a J pouch. Like you can do it. So how do you manage that with the food? And I'm assuming you have to get in a certain shape and you've got to eat certain things. And then on the day of the marathon, you want to have energy and you want to have eaten and you want to stay hydrated. And there may not be a bathroom within the certain vicinity of you. So how do you manage all that to be able to make it through the, the race without too much worry? So do you train for everything you're going to do, right? If you're going to do long distance endurance events, you're going to train a lot for that. And you're going to build up to it. You, nobody eats an elephant tomorrow. And so training for Ironman, uh, I really was able to dial in what nutritionally I needed and particularly what hydrationally I needed. I found out that I need a lot more salt, just, you know, the, the sodium chloride, the potassium and the magnesium than a normal person does. My intake is very high, particularly in a hot race. Is that highly unusual in an athlete? Not necessarily. So I just puts me on that extreme spectrum. And when there is a very hot race, I need to make sure that I'm up on my hydration all the way through race day. The great thing about long distance racing is that you are going to need to fuel food during that race, right? You're going to need a lot of calories during this and that for some people could be a problem with the J pouch, but nutritionally, the way you want to get those calories in is you want to get them in quick and easy, right? You don't want your stomach doing any work. And now through science, everybody's developed gels in particular as a source of fuel that is able to cross the barrier through your stomach and through your intestines very quickly and easily and be mostly absorbed. Right. So as a J poucher, basically it's a low residue day for me because what I'm putting in is going straight through my gut. It's not going to have anything that's going to come out. So most races I can get through maybe with one trip to the porta potty. And just for people that don't know, a half Ironman race is a 1.2 mile swim, a 56 mile bike and a half marathon, 13.1 mile run. A full Ironman is twice that. And my half Ironman, I'm just starting to try and break the five hour barrier. But think about most people take six hours to do it. Okay. So if you're out there for six hours, you know, one trip to the bathroom along that time for most athletes is no big deal. So on my full distance Ironman, the last one, I think I hit a porta potty once as well. And it's actually kind of nice to sit down for a second, but there was no urgency along with it. It was one of those like, Hey, at the next loop, I might want to find that porta potty many large races, Ironman races, New York marathon size races. Look, they got a lot of people are going to have bigger GI issues than many J pouchers are used to. So you're talking, you're going to have a porta potty every mile, every aid station. So it's actually pretty easy that way. Okay. Well, that's good to know because I figured you'd be running for miles and miles before you'd find a porta potty. So well, yeah, and, and, and many, I mean, many people that mess up their nutrition, normal people that mess up the nutrition in an Ironman end up going mile to mile, porta potty to porta potty. Okay. So the fact that look, I, I'm much more dialed in 
because I have to be. So I know my body and I've been training, thinking about, are we going to be okay? What are we putting in? How's it going with GI? One thing I found that really interesting was eating gummies, gummy bears or cliff blocks, anything that was like in, not in a liquid gel, but more in a solid gel. Actually, that gelatin actually would stay in my J pouch and kind of reabsorb if there was any output that developed there. So that was like just specific to J pouchers. Uh, something that I found at least worked for me really well is midway through the bike, I start switching to those more solid gels and, you know, um, solves any problem that I may have now, but a race continues. The clock doesn't stop when you're in the porta potty. So maybe I start having to think about things. If I'm going to go towards that pointy end of the podium or something like that, but for us, regular age groupers out there, believe it or not, it's doable. And I would encourage other people to, to give it a try. You mentioned something about attire considerations for the race. Well, in particular, us uh, triathletes, you're, you're dressing at the beginning of the day for swim, bike, and run. And a lot of people wear, it's called a tri-kit. So it's a one-piece singlet, if you will. And, you know, that's not going to work if you need to sit down in the porta potty So as a uh, triathlete, I'm a big proponent of the two-piece kit. Um, so I wear bottom, a separate bottom and separate top so that if there is a trip to the porta potty it's just it's quick in and out. Again, that's not that unusual, but it is a little twist that I make sure that I keep for myself. That's good advice, actually. I didn't think that there were one piece. That would be very difficult for anybody who is doing a race anyway, right? Even if you just have to run into the bathroom, take a quick pee or whatever. So, well, it was very nice to chat with you today. You have a very positive attitude and a very positive air about you when it comes to, you know, being diagnosed at such a young age, choosing to have your surgery. I know for myself, I didn't get to choose to have my surgery, I was told you need to do this or you're not going to be alive anymore. So I think the takeaway from this is just to be able to look at your life and evaluate your life and see what you want your life to look like and what changes you need to make in order for you to be able to live your life to the fullest. And I think that's not only if you have an illness or you have ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, it's pretty much what people should do regardless of what they're going through. So it's very nice to hear from you and soak in some of your positivity. It's uh, definitely a feel-good story today. Thanks. Yeah, I'd encourage anybody that's struggling with this to reach out to others that are doing well. And that's hard to find. If you go to the support groups, if you go to the um, forums, who's going to be in there? Usually it's the other people that are struggling, right? It's people go to the forum because they're unhappy, they're struggling, things aren't not going perfectly. The people, when I'm doing really well, I'm going to go out and do an Ironman. I'm going to go do marathons. I'm going to go do this and that. I'm not going to be spending my time in the forum. So if if the echo chamber is where you're hearing of other people that this this procedure or this drug isn't working because that's what you're finding online, um, I'd really encourage them to, to really yell out, I need that positive role model. I need that support. And if I can do that for other people, have them look me up on um, social media, have them look up me up on the support forums. I wish there was a better way for me to race my races and say, I'm doing this without a colon people because we are out there. There's no good way for people to spotlight us. Unfortunately, it's not something that everybody wants to hear about or talk about, but there are millions of us out there living our lives with J pouches 
every day. I reached out to the J Pouch group because it was just this like point in my life where I felt like I feel like nobody in the world has J Pouch but me, right? So I've reached out now and it's it's nice. And you're right. I I'll pop onto the J Pouch group and I'll hear somebody's having issues and share a little bit of advice. And a couple months back I went fishing and I had to fast for like almost 24 hours and not have a lot of water and the heat because my J pouch is very easily triggered. But I did it because I was like, who gets to go ocean fishing, period. And I hadn't ocean fished in forever. I was like, forget it. I'm going to fast. I'm not going to drink. I'll make sure that I'll be okay on the boat. But it was the dehydration afterwards. So I reached out, you know, and I, and I think it is a very good forum for everybody I do feel you find the people who are positive and the people who could pull some of the positive from us that are on there sharing our positivity. And that's how I met you. Awesome. Well, I'm glad to, uh, yeah, meet you and glad to, you know, share that positivity of that there is hope and um, really reaching out as I did to my doctor and saying, this is not okay. I'm not okay with my life being like this anymore. And even once someone has a J pouch to really have that honest discussion with their doctor of how do we get me from here to here yes. um, and, and work as a partnership of this is what my life is like now. And this is what I want my life to look like. How can we work together as a team to get me there? The doctor you have right now may not be the fit to make that happen. And that's really one thing I took away too, right? I had to move GIs a number of times because it, it wasn't a good fit. They weren't getting me to where I wanted to be. And ultimately I got to a surgeon who was a good fit. Sharing our experiences definitely makes a difference on our outcomes and just being open to, to trying different things. I thank you today for being so patient. I know we've had a few technical difficulties, but I'm glad that we were able to talk today. We'll chat again soon. Awesome, thank you, hey. you too. Upon reflecting after the podcast today, I came to the realization that I've had chats now with six different very positive people from all over the world, from the US, New Mexico, Scotland, Canada, and Australia. And the realization I've come to is that as long as you do your best to stay positive, you share information and experiences, you reach out if you need help, it definitely makes our journeys much easier. Thank you for joining us again today. I hope you learned something new. Upon reflecting after the podcast today, I came to the realization that I've had chats now with six different very positive people from all over the world, actually. From the U.S., New Mexico, Scotland, Canada, and Australia. And the realization I've come to is that as long as you do your best to stay positive, you share information and experiences, you reach out if you need help, it definitely makes our journeys much easier. Thank you for joining us again today. I hope you learned something new.